It's a good time to get ready for Sunday. What follows is a preview of the scripture readings in the upcoming Sunday Masses to be celebrated in a Catholic church near you. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here to share some thoughts that I hope will help the scripture of this weekend's Masses speak more clearly to you. Today, that means examining the readings that are part of the Masses on September 5th, 2021. As the Church organizes itself, it is the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time of Year B in the three-year lectionary cycle. As usual, I'll take those readings out of order and begin with the second reading. It's unique in its purpose relative to the other principal readings, so we get it out of the way first. We are continuing our five-week look at the letter of James. You might recall from last week that this is one of the seven so-called Catholic epistles. That is, its intended audience is the entire church throughout the world. It's universal. That's the meaning of the word Catholic. Rather than being directed toward a specific community or individual, And although traditionally attributed to James, called the brother of the Lord, the letter's origin was vague even in the early church. There were two other apostles of Jesus named James who might have been credited with the work, James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus. Of the three, the first James I mentioned seemed for a very long time to be the most likely author. It is widely understood through modern scholarship to have been authored in the late first century and coming out of a Greek-speaking Jewish-Christian community. A principal reason for the new attribution is the style of Greek used in the text. It is, scholars tell us, highly nuanced and that of someone very well educated in Greek rhetorical skills. That would seem to eliminate the three earlier attribution candidates. The passage for the day consists of the first five verses of chapter 2 in James. We do still call it by that name. It's a habit of 1900 years. And more importantly, the author's choice to self-identify as James is a direct reference to the name Jacob, held in high esteem as the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. Listen to the day's excerpt first, Then I'll try to make sure we're all hearing the same message. This is, then, a reading from the letter of James. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you adhere to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say, Sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil designs? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Did not God choose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him. The Word of the Lord. 
Now, before I get serious about the text, here's a trivia question for you. What do the author or authors of this letter have in common with Ian Fleming, the creator of the James Bond 007 novels? The answer will show up in just a bit. Overall, this passage addresses the need for the church to be free from prejudicial judgments and actions, even if they are disguised as normal behavior in the larger culture. Addressing societal norms not entirely unlike our own today, the writer calls for the church to be very countercultural in its egalitarianism. No one is to be prejudged as superior or inferior compared to any other, least of all by some shallow surface impression such as one's clothing. Socially acceptable or not, the behavior related in the reading is in direct opposition to the very basis of the church, in defiance of the teachings of Jesus, whose message was an open invitation to every person to follow his example of treating the marginalized with dignity and grace, thereby to follow him into a closer relationship with the eternal life of divine love. One of the interesting contrasts between the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Gospels is that there is a markedly greater mention, specifically, of the need for social justice in the Hebrew Scriptures as compared to the New Testament as a whole. Jesus is consistently seen as the one who does, in fact, deliver mercy and justice without regard to economic or social status. But the earliest church communities were primarily made up of men and women who were among the powerless, among the poor. So it might have seemed there was little reason to pay a lot of attention to how one acted toward poor versus rich individuals. But if we're looking at a church just a bit later in its infancy, like the end of the first century rather than the middle, the issue is more likely to be present as a wider sample of society finds its way into the new faith communities. It might very well be the point here that even though the emerging Christian scriptures don't often specifically mention equality of persons regardless of status, that does not mean the gospel message has no social implications. It most certainly does. In his call for the community to show no partiality, James uses a term that occurs only three other times in Christian scripture. All of those others are in the letters of Paul. All these instances seem to be recalling the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy, where God is described as having no favorites, and as one who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and loves the resident alien. James is addressing his exhortations to the community throughout the letter. In this passage, it is the communal behavior that is labeled as contrary to both the Jewish tradition and the teaching of Jesus. This selection from the letter today is consistent with the rest of the letter. It is one of twelve distinct exhortations within this letter, exhortations toward righteous communal behavior. 
All are reminders of the values constituting the unique identity of the Twelve-Tribe Nation. These actions separate, even elevate, the Jews from the wider society. By addressing these exhortations to the whole community of the early church and championing the dignity of the poor among them, the author of James is perfectly in line with the long tradition of prophets before him. Oh, the trivia question? Back to James Bond? The literal translation of the Greek describing the wealthy man with all the rings is golden-fingered. Fleming was not the first one to write about a goldfinger. With that out of the way, I'll move on to the first reading for this Mass. It comes from the 35th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Scholars have determined that the entirety of this book was compiled over about two centuries. Isaiah himself was a very important prophet of Judah, the southern kingdom, working throughout the latter half of the 8th century BC, that is, from about 740 to about 700 BC. The chapter from which we read today is not from that time. Scholars place this passage from either during or right after the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people, which was between either 597 or 586, depending on which expert you believe, and it ended in 538 BC. It comes from a member of the Isaiah school of prophets. So this is either a message of hope and promise to an oppressed people, or, and I think this is less likely, it is an after-the-fact I told you so. The first command we hear in this prophecy is, Fear not. Throughout the scriptures, Christian or Hebrew, we hear that a lot. It might be the most frequent reassurance we get from God. Here comes a little detour. Have you noticed that while God keeps telling us not to be afraid, there are also many, many warnings to fear God. It seems like a mixed message, but it's not. Not really. For the most part, when we hear, do not be afraid, it's a promise of God's faithfulness to his creation, which includes us. It is a call for us to trust that faithfulness, no matter how threatening the situation or how dire the circumstance. As for having fear of the Lord, that's better translated as having awe and reverence. It generally refers to us knowing our place. It refers to us recognizing that there really is a force greater than our own, that there is a creator and we are a part of the resulting creation. Our job, take care not to get our roles mixed up, and hold fast to trusting in ultimate goodness. Okay, back on track. The prophet promises God will intervene and make things right with vindication, which here means defense or being freed from blame or penalty. It is not used to suggest vengeance. God will come with divine recompense, he says. Here again, the use is not to denote paying back the oppressors by making them suffer oppression in return. Divine recompense here 
is directed toward the re-establishment of the Israelite people, and it includes a healing of infirmities and recreation of their lands to be a fertile, welcoming place. God's recompense involves perfecting rather than punishing creation. We read this from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, Say to those whose hearts are frightened, Be strong, fear not. Here is your God. He comes with vindication. With divine recompense he comes to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared, then will the lame leap like a stag, then the tongue of the mute will sing. Streams will burst forth in the desert, and rivers in the steppe. The burning sands will become pools, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The Word of the Lord. The responsorial psalm at this Mass is taken from Psalm number 146. It puts the promises of restoration and renewal that are present in the reading from Isaiah into the larger perspective of all the time since the origins of the Jewish people. He does this by referencing Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. Jacob who was also named Israel after surviving a wrestling match with God, is recognized as the father of the twelve tribes that are the Israelite people. As usual, I will read the refrain only at the beginning and the end. Praise the Lord my soul. The God of Jacob keeps faith forever, secures justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets captives free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord raises up those who were bowed down. The Lord loves the just. The Lord protects strangers. The fatherless and the widow the Lord sustains, but the way of the wicked he thwarts. The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion through all generations. Alleluia. Praise the Lord, my soul. The references here and in Isaiah about restoring sight and hearing apply as well to the perfection of creation that I suggested earlier. With God's heart, which we are called to emulate, there is no pointless vengeance against the oppressor. Rather, the eyes and ears of those people as well are opened, and they too are invited to take into themselves and be transformed by the wonders of a loving God. Now we get to the gospel. We are back in the gospel of Mark, the predominant gospel during this liturgical year. In today's passage... Jesus is far from home. We hear of Tyre and the Decapolis. This is all territory inhabited primarily by Gentiles. The Decapolis was a grouping of ten cities, most founded under Greek rule, that each enjoyed a good deal of political autonomy from, in turn, the Greek and then the Roman empires. Deca, ten, 
polis cities might be a bit of a simplification, as there are as many as 19 cities that have been associated with the name by various historians. In that regard, I suppose they're sort of like the current Big Ten Athletic Conference, which now has 14 universities as members. All the cities were north of Jerusalem. The northernmost was Damascus. Tyre and Sidon are both cities in modern-day Lebanon. These are areas where people of the Semitic cultures of the region, including the Israelites, interacted a great deal with first the Greek and then the Roman cultures. Jesus' presence there was an outreach beyond the Jewish people, and many of Jesus' disciples were said to have come out of these areas. Jesus does perform miraculous cures within these territories. In the sixth chapter of Mark, Jesus heals many in Gennesaret when he first comes to this side of the Sea of Galilee. Many or most of these healings were probably of Gentiles. Why do I think it's mostly Gentiles? Because the major agriculture of the area was raising swine, which the Jews would not, could not eat. Today's story comes at the end of the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel, immediately following the story of Jesus performing an exorcism of a demon, oppressing the daughter of a Greek woman of Syrophoenician birth. Mark writes of Jesus initially dismissing the woman's plea for her daughter's healing, saying to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. The label, the children, is reference to Jesus being sent to the Israelites. To be called a dog was, and still is, an insult of tremendous impact in that region. Her response, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's scraps, was one Jesus clearly found compelling. Might Jesus have been reminded of how he was rejected in the Nazareth synagogue when she mentioned the children's scraps? That encounter showed a non-Jewish woman who evidently had heard of Jesus and was truly hungry for the healing he had the power to effect. As I read this story, I see her as a representative of all those Gentiles who were more than happy to take up the teaching of a rabbi who was being rejected by so many of his own people. The passage we have today does not specifically identify the ethnicity of the man who is cured, but given the geographic setting, it is certainly possible, even most likely, that he and the people who bring him to Jesus were also Gentiles. This is a good time to hear the passage. Then I'll talk about the healing itself and some of its significant implications. So we have a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Again, Jesus left the district of Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the district of the Decapolis. And people brought to him a deaf man who had a speech impediment and begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him off by himself 
away from the crowd. He put his finger into the man's ears, and spitting, touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and groaned, and said to him, Ephphathah, that is, be opened. And immediately the man's ears were opened. His speech impediment was removed, and he spoke plainly. He ordered them not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them not to, the more they proclaimed it. They were exceedingly astonished, and they said, He has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The Gospel of the Lord. This is a very showy kind of healing. Jesus is groaning, spitting, touching, poking. Compared to the majority of such acts, we see Jesus perform in the Gospels. Most miracles are accomplished with a single word, a command. I read one commentary that attributed the visual and tactile nature of this healing to the fact that Jesus was in Gentile territory, and traveling healers around there would customarily do such things in their ministrations. For me, the more likely explanation is that Jesus was simply communicating with the deaf man in the way that he, the deaf one, could understand. It needed to be tactile, visual, and even contain the kind of groaning, it's also translated as sighing, of which the deaf are also generally capable. The spoken word would not be explanatory for a deaf man until after his ears were opened. This might have included more stagecraft than other miracles of Jesus, but it was still intensely personal, even intimate. The first thing Jesus did was take the man away from the crowd. Jesus will not make him a public spectacle. The relationship between the two is between the two, one on one. The man is no mere prop for Jesus to use. He is a beloved one to be healed. Now, to be clear, this healing is accomplished after the showy stuff has been done with a word, a command from Jesus. Ephatha, be opened. This is one of two instances in the Gospels where the writer includes a bit of the Aramaic language that would have been the native tongue of Jesus. The other is the command he used to raise the daughter of Jairus from death. Talitha, kum, little girl, get up. One commentator, probably more than one, I haven't read them all, has observed that what is happening to the deaf man is a fast motion picture of what is happening to the disciples. They have been unable to hear, or for that matter see, clearly what Jesus was in fact doing and teaching. Yet, gradually for them, and rapidly for this deaf man, their senses are opening, enough to be able to hear and see more of the true good news that Jesus brings and that he is. This deaf man cured is a symbol of all the Gentiles being brought into the promises made to the Israelites. 
The Gentiles' ears are now being opened. They are now becoming able to hear the word of God and respond to it. They are also invited into the divine life of love. The twelve have been like the crowds that marks Jesus asks to hold their tongues about him and his works until they begin to grasp his works and teachings more fully. Note that it is only after the deaf man's ears are opened that he is able to speak clearly. It reminds me of a Baptist minister, a lovely man with whom I worked many years ago. He was prone to tell me over and over again, he told me, Mark, you can't preach the gospel if you ain't seen the light. He was, by the way, a Southern Baptist. If you've heard the term, the messianic secret, which is most often applied to Mark's writing, this is what it refers to. The desire Jesus had that others not speak of him before they had a more complete a deeper understanding of what is being done through his mission. Which, by the way, is not over yet. If you are among those who wonder, if Jesus took this man away from the crowd for this healing, why does the crowd need to be told not to broadcast the news of it? He did go off with Jesus, deaf and with a stammer. Stammer is the literal translation of the original Greek rendered as speech impediment in our translation. The man obviously came back from his healing able to speak clearly, presumably to those who had brought him to Jesus for healing in the first place. There's what I interpret as a nifty little reversal of language at the end of this story. This is an illustration of Jesus opening the senses of this man, and by extension, opening the senses of the twelve, and by further extension, the senses of all the Gentiles. They come to their senses. And our translation says the people were exceedingly astonished. Another translation renders it completely awestruck. Here's the reversal. The principal Greek verb used in the original text is explesonto. It is an intensive form of the root plesian, and it means to be struck out of your senses. The Gentile witnesses have become an excited assembly, unable to hold back in the proclamation of the person and the power of Jesus. I pray you are able to show up at Mass this weekend, in person or online, as your personal health and your community's health will allow. And may the blessing of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fill your soul with joy.